Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre, with me is Z. Today we have a Wormable NFT marketplace bug, an SSRF and VMware Workspace ONE UEM, a container escape and GitLab CI runners, and more. And uh, before we get into topics, thank you, by the way, to Imperial Gee for the eight months. Appreciate it. So, yeah, I just wanted to call that out really quick. All right, so uh, first we have a topic that we were going to cover a few weeks ago as a different blog post, but unfortunately at the time um, we felt there were some details missing and it was a bit fuzzy on what the issues were, so we didn't want to cover it at the time. Um, recently, though, uh, we found that there was a different post that talked about it from Palisade, uh, so we thought we'd cover it today and kind of bring up both posts. Um, so this is a vulnerability in rarible.com which is an NFT marketplace where you can post and, and sell and buy NFTs and such. Um, and last month, Palisade Consulting reported an XSS and a, and a web application firewall bypass that could execute um, JS on a victim's machine. And in this case, that's a little bit more impactful than it would be usual, usually because, um, you know, with Web3 and you're dealing with the uh, web extension-based wallets, you can do some really interesting phishing attacks and such with that kind of position. So the XSS itself was the fact that the photo parameter in the user profiles wasn't sanitized. They don't go into too much detail there. Um, my guess is that they're just pulling in like a, a user link for an image or whatever for a photo and then putting that in straight in. So yeah, they don't sanitize the photo parameter. So anyone who could have your malicious picture rendered, which would contain a JavaScript payload, um, would have that malicious code run. And then that itself could set their own profile pictures and malicious payload. And that's where the, the worm propagation aspect of it comes from. Um, to get around the Cloudflare firewall, they just simply encoded their payload in Base64 and decoded it when evaluating. Um, and yeah, yeah I'm like not I said, sure the what exactly high, though. the bypass here is. I mean... Cloudflare bypasses tend to just be combine a bunch of tricks. So, I mean, yeah, so they did the basics for, I don't think that's going to be sufficient to just bypass uh, uh, the WAF just using base 64. Otherwise everybody would be doing that. And Cloudflare bypasses are usually at least somewhat novel. There does seem to be a few things going on here, obviously A to B for the uh, base 64. A um, little bit of trickery when it comes to the Unicode values. Uh, yeah, there, the, there's uh, a few things here that can be messing up with the parsing. I don't really want to speculate on exactly what Cloudflare is doing to make it work. They just propose it as this worked for them. Um, yeah. And no information on whether or not Cloudflare's updated their WAF to prevent that. Yeah, they specifically call out the base 64 in their post, though. So that's why I wanted to just bring that up quickly while we were talking about it. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, from there, they basically pocked trying to uh, to write a payload that would modify the price of a board ape um, and then get the user to try to sign that transaction. Um, just demonstrating some of the kind of phishing attacks that you can pull off there. Um, Which yeah, I, th I think the main reason we want to talk about it is because of that aspect of it, where it's a little bit different than like your typical XSS. Yeah, so I thought this aspect was kind of interesting. Um, in part because, uh, the way a lot of the Web3 things work is you're going to have an extension installed, and then when you want to sign a transaction to actually send out and, like, do a transaction on the blockchain or whatever, um, you're going to operate through this, uh, uh, through this extension. 
Um, and the thing with that is that extension, unlike a web application where you would maybe have cookies or something kind of showing you're signed in, like everything can, in theory, every website can start communicating with that. Just, you know, import web three or whatever, um, a little bit more complicated than that, but there's effectively the web three JS you can add on as a script and then like do all of that work. So when you have an XSS on, you know, something where people likely have that installed, that becomes a new attack service where it doesn't really matter if your XSS is even running in the doc in like the rareable domain or whatever, because you can just start accessing that and get that Web3 prompt to show up uh, to be like, hey, go and sign this transaction, whether or not it really makes sense for the page. Um, so sure, I mean, if you did that on like... Uh, the checkpoint vulnerability, um, I believe, was in SVG, and you would get it when it displayed on the profile, but you would also get it when, um, uh, if you just visited the SVG itself. And if you just visited the SVG, that's going to be a bit of a weird page to get that prompt on, but it would still cause that Web3 prompt to happen. It would still go through all of that, uh, which just makes it kind of an interesting attack surface if you're in an environment where that's likely to be using that as kind of a, um, basically a way of escalating an XSS that isn't in, like, uh, the normal domain. Um, it's something else you can go and hit. Obviously, it's going to be a little bit context-dependent, but I thought it was an interesting idea. The way they went about it here for their little phishing attack was, as Spectre said, they modified the price to make it look cheaper to kind of encourage them to actually sign this malicious transaction. They think they're going to buy it for cheap, but they're actually signing a transaction that approves the attacker to uh, take all of their NFTs. Um, and they're able to query a bunch of that game because of the Web3 aspect. Um, I thought that was just an interesting thing to bring up here. They did get a $5,000 bounty here out of Rarible for finding this. On a whole, um, the vulnerability seems straightforward. Like Spectre said, we just see what this final payload was. Um, so presumably it's taking like a URL or something. Um, as I mentioned, the case of the checkpoint. So initially I actually thought this was talking about the same vulnerability because it was a another sort of XSS. Uh, they were dealing with Board Ape also. And, and they had like a similar attack mechanism. So I actually thought these were the same vulnerabilities when I looked at it and they're not the same vulnerability exactly, but they do a lot of the same things. Um, yeah, so like this Palisade one where it's with the profile pictures, the checkpoint one was with the art itself um, for like, I think the, the posting page for like the NFT and they would allow SVGs. So yeah, it was a little bit confusing for me too. I, I was kind of in the same boat. Um, yeah, but they were slightly different attacks it seems. Because I had read that and they came out just days apart. This one was April 18th, the other one the 14th. Um, it's the end, Chav mentions, it seems kind of low. I assume you're talking about the bounty, and yeah, $5,000 on, like, a crypto relay bounty does seem really low. Um, that said, because it is a XSS on, like, the crypto site, I feel like they're probably just getting away with doing normal web app kind of bounty pricing, in which case $5,000 for XSS isn't that crazy, like, it's not high. But it's not that off either. Yeah, I mean, it's a little interesting because usually when we're talking about crypto bugs, they're in smart contracts. 
Yeah. Um, and that kind of comes with their own like challenges when it comes to deploying fixes and uh, the amount of damage that can be caused. Um, this one, it's, it is more of like a phishing type issue or for like uh, attacking users in that sense. So the impact I mean, the is a bit lower than some real. of the typical crypto bugs, but yeah, I'd kind of agree. 5,000 does seem a little low just because of the context surrounding it. I mean, the excess is low. They can't make transactions as a user because it does all happen on the blockchain. So that actually is almost a mitigating factor in the fact that the XSS actually does require user interaction to do anything because of that. Um, but they can also worm it and all that. The worming aspect's kind of fun. It's been a while since, or I don't think we've even covered any wormable XSS on the podcast before. I don't, I don't know. think we have I either. just, I always come back to thinking about, uh, Sammy Campcar's, uh, uh, what was that? MySpace? All right, forgetting the name, but yeah, MySpace XSS worm way back when. Yep. All right, so uh, we'll get into our next topic here, which is an SSRF in Workspace One UEM, uh, which is like an enterprise solution for corporate data management and provisioning mobile apps and such for, for corporations. Um, this was put out by Asset Note. The vulnerability in attack scenario here is not really new. It's something we've seen before on the show, as it basically boils down to the fact that the user, this user-provided encrypted URL parameter would get used and proxied to um, in some applications bundled with Workspace ONE UEM. Um, here they focus on AirWatch, I believe, and they just assume that encryption protects protects from like untrusted input or arbitrary attacker input. Um, and there's kind of two problems here with uh, with their assumptions here. Um, the first of which is you don't you need to use some form of signing to guarantee authenticity of data. Um, just encrypting it on its own isn't really any guarantee on its origins. Um, you have to use you know signing or, or something like that uh, to, to verify authenticity. The other problem is depending on the user provided key version, if it's set to KV0 or if it's just not set at all, um, it falls back and defaults on using hard coded encryption keys, which obviously can be pulled by an attacker and opens up the URL parameter to attacker control because now they can encrypt their own data and, and it'll get decrypted properly and as expected. So kind of those two issues put together um, allow for the SSRF to take place. The rest of the post mainly talks about writing their own tool to do the encryption in the POC. Um, but mainly, I mean, <laughs> the main takeaway from this post is just another reminder that crypto does not equal authenticity on its own yeah you need more for integrity i mean so crypto there are so there is authenticated crypto um so that does exist yeah, you that like you can HVAC use or something well so there are crypto systems that have some of the authenticity checks or integrity checks built into them uh like aed for aes and aed mode um will do that um so like that exists without needing to add the extra layer on so it does exist but this generally isn't the case. Um, if you use something, uh, I want to say, uh, like most crypto libraries, if they provide like a secret box, they'll probably be doing that automatically for you. Um, in this case, obviously they're not, which is kind of the other giveaway or thing to take note of is the fact they kind of just have this data encryption class that they make with the encrypt string or uh, decrypt. Uh, and just having those sorts of things, it's like rolling your own crypto, as I've said a number of times, isn't just like writing the AES routine yourself. It's rolling your own protocols that involve crypto. 
Um, ideally, you should avoid doing that, too, because it's hard to get everything right unless you have a lot of experience dealing with crypto and all the ways it can go wrong. Um, so, yeah, this is just another one of those cases, hard-coded key in there. Users are able to kind of force use of that key and then encrypt it for themselves. Ultimately, I mean, there's it is a little bit more complex than just encrypting the URL, and you would have to do a little bit of work to figure out exactly what everything means. Uh, they kind of had to walk through the code a little bit here, but it does boil down to a pretty simple issue. Yeah, it's worth calling out that they also did discover some variants because this code, uh, I think it's like this blob handler, was deployed in multiple applications. Um, so, yeah, towards the bottom of the post, they say, like, I called out the fact that it was an AirWatch, but they also call out it's in Wandering Wi-Fi, um, Catalog, and the uh, the AW console. So, yeah. Well, so, I think so, um, Wandering Wi-Fi is uh, where AirWatch blob handler dot AS H. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so it's right. a two application. It's not four. I yeah, think. sorry, you're right. They they just kind of explain a, a bit more of the endpoint uh, tagged on there. Yeah. He, well, the file name versus class path. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, just one of those things where it's like crypto on its own. You you have to use it properly for it to be effective, and it's really hard to use it properly. <laughs> properly evidently yeah. uh, as we end up proving time and time again on the show <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's one of those areas like um you know when i do code review i would just grab for you know aes for crypto for uses of those terms because odds are they're just going to use it wrong somehow sometimes it's exploitable sometimes it's not sometimes it would just be some informational thing but probably like 90 95 percent of the time when i saw crypto being used something was wrong and there was some viable attack going on so i mean it's hard to get right um and i'll just shout out since we're kind of talking about it uh the book serious cryptography if if you kind of want to get a introduction on the crypto side of things with more of a security focus i really like that book All right, so for our next topic, we have uh, what Z thinks is the most straightforward 2FA bypass uh, he's ever seen. Um, this is in an undisclosed website detailed by uh, Sufian Guri. Uh, sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, while we don't know the target, the details on the setup are good enough to be able to understand the issue. Um, basically, this, the site had the standard password reset mechanism where you request a password reset, uh, a link gets sent to you with the token, and you can enter a new password. Um, and then it'll redirect you to uh, the dashboard using the reset endpoint uh, redirect. Um, now, when you have 2FA enabled, instead of redirecting you to reset, it would redirect you to this reset 2FA uh, endpoint to prompt for, for two-factor authentication. Um, funny thing is, it seems you could just capture that request and modify it to send yourself to the regular endpoint instead of the reset 2FA endpoint. And uh, yeah, you could do that and bypass 2FA. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it might be one of the easiest 2FAs we've seen. Yeah, this is one of those, uh, just for a little bit of clarity for the listeners, it's one of those setups where you kind of have the uh, two stages. So you enter the username and then you kind of go through. It does seem like they're also entering a new password before they do the whole 2FA stuff. So um, I think we had that discussion a little bit about how that also feels like a little bit of the wrong order. But um, I, I mean, the fact that they just have this post going on just change it to reset instead of reset to FA, like the two different endpoints and they don't check the account should be using that endpoint. 
is kind of like is definitely something that should catch your eye uh, when you see the same sort of functionality being duplicated because of this 2FA. You know, there's maybe the case of being able to bypass it as they do here. Uh, but yeah, definitely fairly straightforward. Literally just delete three characters. Yeah, so not a super long post or, you know, super interesting post for uh, for the attack that's happening, but no, kind but of it's a fun, a fun attack. Yeah. Good find. So getting into some Hacker One stuff, we have kind of a zero-day report in GitLab CI runners. Um, I say kind of a zero-day because this bug was closed as informative by GitLab staff, and they've known about it for a while, um, and they don't really agree with it being a security issue, which I think we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but what the vulnerability reported here was uh, is the fact that the CI containers in GitLab are overprivileged um, and can mount file systems inside of the container, and thus they have the ability to abuse the cgroup release agent functionality for a container escape. Um, this report doesn't go into a lot of detail on that, but it's a documented container escape vector. Um, I believe Trail of Bits did a, a post on it, and yeah, I think Trail we might have Bits. covered some reports that use that trick as well, but I'm not 100% certain on it that. It did feel vaguely familiar, but yeah, Trail of Bits, I think, did a good post on it. I think it was first documented here by uh, Felix Wilhelm um, as just a quick and dirty way of getting out a privilege, K-Pod, uh, who ends up documenting... Um, or basically just providing the Twitter post of an escape with it. Uh, not a ton of explanation there, then trail a bit. I took it for. So yeah, it's a documented thing. It's been known about effectively that release agent's going to get executed when a C group, um, when something under it. So you mount the C group, um, when something under it gets cleaned, if notify on release is set, so just like echo one to notify on release, um, it'll execute whatever the release agent binary or path is. So you can set that to your own script. That's going to execute on the host, um, giving you, you know, as they do here, a reverse shell um, onto, I, I guess I say the host, onto the VM. So this is a container escape into the VM, which is where... GitLab, um, in other reports they've had reported on this, um, where is it? I think it goes back 2019, somebody reported something similar, I think it's in a comment here, they have the, uh, Yeah, it was report. a, uh, it was a Git issue, and, uh, yeah, I think it was, like, three years ago, or something like that, um, so yeah, like, the researcher goes into detail on why they think this is a problem, um, Noting that CI goes out of its way to prevent access to GCP metadata and host configuration information, uh, GCP being Google Cloud Platform. Um, and this container escape would allow direct access to that data and other hosts on the internal uh, GCP network. Um, it, this could also be used to disable IP tables and get arbitrary software and images ran, such as like crypto miners or something. Um, there's also the potential for leaking information between jobs if multiple jobs were scheduled on the same dedicated runner. Um, although that's kind of left as a, a hypothetical. Um, they didn't run into this situation when testing. Well, so it does um, seem like GitLab claims that that won't happen. Um, in okay. the ticket. Uh, they end up talking about this, and they basically talk about how a lot of like the information you could leak there, like, yeah, you can link those tokens, but you can only basically access logging with it, like write logs with the tokens. That's not very valuable. Um, this is a container escape into a VM. 
so it's not like onto the full host system. Um, I do also kind of disagree with GitLab here in terms of just deciding they're okay with it. Like, fair as a company, they can decide they're okay with that risk, but part of the point of using containers is like to have at least this extra step needed. So if you don't deal with the known ways of getting out, why even use containers in the first place? I mean, it does add a little bit of extra work. They do need to figure that out, but um, ultimately, I mean, it feels like a disaster waiting to happen. As soon as somebody has the VM escape, then they don't really need to worry about the container escape. They just need the one thing. Um, I will also mention here, uh, that EC0 here, the guy that reported this, um, also did a talk at NahumCon, which was just this past weekend, about these sort of CI escapes. I haven't watched it, so I'm not sure what all is detailed, but, uh, there's probably more information here on his thoughts on this side of thing in his post, since he does, or he indicates that he's going to be talking specifically about this vulnerability in that talk. I'll shout out that that's there. Pretty sure the videos are already, well, at least they're currently available on on Twitch, I think. I can't remember if I checked YouTube. Or maybe they're on YouTube. I don't know. They're, they're available. You can Google it or I'll add a link to the show notes. Yeah, we'll, we'll have them on the website um, for anyone who's interested in that. But yeah, um, the other thing is that the author pointed out is they don't see a reason why these containers should be privileged enough to mount file systems this way in the first place. Um, and they think it should be an easy fix to just tone down the privileges on the container. Um, that said, there might be some internal reason that GitLab doesn't do that. I, I didn't see anything in the, uh, the GitLab issue that Z was just talking about that touched on that part of part of it. Um, I would have to think that there would be some reason that they can't fix it so easily just because you know, we've covered a lot of GitLab issues, um, and we've never really seen GitLab, you know, handle a report badly. Um, it seems like they take security pretty seriously, so I would think there would have to be a reason other than they just don't want to fix it. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of the uh, the report author's thoughts, is that this, you know, they really should just be toning down the privileges on these CIs. Um, I don't really know why like a continuous integration runner would need to mount file systems. That seems pretty, that seems like a pretty big privilege to give them that I can't, like I, I've, I, I haven't done a ton of CI work, but the bit of CI work I've done, I've never thought to myself, I need to mount file systems to the store. Um, well, I don't know. So if you I could imagine the case Z, but... of having some sort of like, you know, the using fuse or something and mounting a user space file system. I can see a sort of thing going on there where they might want to mount something. Uh, but specifically, uh, part of it is also the C groups aspect. Uh, that comes apart from the privileged. Um, just being able to mount the C groups rather than just mounting like uh, any old file system. Um, so yeah. I'd say that's also part of it. I kind of agree. Like, I don't see a big reason for it. But I do feel like there is a there's probably a reason why they're at least keeping privilege, even though with mounting, like like I said, I could see reasons for mounting in general, just not C-group access. Yeah, and uh, Tony Wan chat said, uh, CI-CD mounting FS would probably be to create an isolated environment for each one, make it easy to clean. Uh, you don't need root to mount with Fuse either. 
Yeah. So I volume mean, mounting, I think, is also a little bit different here with the containers. Like, you can uh, create an isolated, isolated environment in that way that I think would be separate from the actual running the mount command in the container. But yeah, you don't need root to mount with views, so... Like, there are ways that you can go about this, and it's just on the the, the C-groups aspect um, that they gain from this being a privileged box, and we don't have the information on why they chose to keep privileged in there. Yeah. Unfortunately, without knowing more of the internals, it's a bit hard to comment on, like, uh, you know, what steps GitLab could really take here. But, you know, overall, GitLab just doesn't really agree with the this issue being like a high impact issue like z touched on earlier they they say that it's only used for writing to gcp logging and monitoring um they don't use the, the google service account tokens for caching or anything like that um that original issue or um yeah that original issue that they talked about from 2019 like that is three years ago something could have changed since then to be fair um but, yeah that's an important yeah, that's... thing to call out um there definitely could be changes from what was accessible three years ago to what they're doing right now. Um, but on a whole, I mean, this is this just feels like defense in depth. Like, you have an issue, you have these layers of security, um, take advantage of them if you're going to use them, um, secure them. Yeah, and, and that's kind of, uh, I guess, another point in favor of, like, why it's kind of a bad idea to leave this unfixed is the fact that, you know, code changes and something that might not be exploitable today could be exploitable tomorrow. Yeah. Um, Tony Watt in chat also called out syscalls like unshare also work in containers too, unless you disable it on the host and you can gain Linux caps with that. Um, I would be very concerned if any like public CI container setup was able to, had user namespaces enabled. Um, that would be really insane because, yeah, that that's just way too dangerous to expose that much kernel attack surface. Yeah, and I guess there is no reason to do that. Part of the thing is, is as long as they keep it as a privileged box, like it is going to have all of these privileged, uh, sorry, a privileged container. Um, as long as they keep that, like it is going to keep all of that access. Um, like well, th unshare, you just shouldn't be like configuring the kernel with that for running containers in, in general. Like in this I context. mean, don't you kind of need the namespaces for containerization? Not kind of part of how containers tend to work is using the namespaces? Uh, I guess it depends on the container technology. Uh, I think we've talked about this a little bit before. Like, does Docker use user namespaces? I'm trying to think. Well, I, I believe so. Um, yeah. Like, Do yeah, Docker's built right, off of all the C group stuff. Like, it's built off yeah. of all of that tech there. So. Um, you're, okay, you're like you're fair. going to have the namespaces enable. Like you can't just enable that outright. Um, actually, in fairness, uh, Docker did do some. This was, I guess, a few years ago. So maybe my knowledge is a bit out of date. Um, but I know they rewrote like their container environment or something. I don't know. So I'd have to look to specifically say yes, absolutely, Docker does. But um, it, it does feel like one of those things that it's not as easy to just straight up not allow that across the entire kernel because that was at least historically with like uh, LWC and stuff, which precursor to Docker, um, would have used some of that. 
Uh, yeah, that's either true. way, so it is kind of a necessary evil. But yeah, it should be being privileged off in a way that it can't be abused. But it's possible that it's reachable, and yeah, that's I guess that's a fair point to raise too. Yeah, I mean, I've just come down to it does feel like there's some architectural reason that they're choosing to run this as a privileged container. And I mean, essentially, you know, ignoring the C groups aspect, um, if it's a privileged container, they're almost always going to be some escapes out there. There are a number of escapes when it comes to privileged container. People are continually even coming up with newer ones. So, like, that feels like the fundamental issue that either needs to be resolved or maybe clarified as to why all the runners are in that. Um, if it's a privileged container, it's going to be escapable. So, um, like, talking, I guess, about something specifics just feels like the wrong discussion to me. Feels a little superficial, yeah. Um, yeah, so, the, like Z said, the problem there is just running these privileged as, or, uh, running these containers as privileged as they are. Um, that said, when you're starting to get into these infrastructure type issues, they are also getting into the more difficult to fix territory because if you rely on those privileges, um, then you have to find a way to work around them that's secure and that's not like easy or cheap at all. Um, that takes a lot of developer effort to to redesign their their containerization to work that way. So, yeah, um, from GitLab's yeah, perspective, they just don't think it's worth it. And you know, like you said, at the end of the day, they and at the end of the day, that's their call to make. So, yeah, at the end of the day, like on its own, because this is into a very weakly privileged VM, like it is somewhat fair to decide that it's not a huge priority. Like I, I can, while I disagree with making that choice, I can understand that choice. Um, like as a company, you have to prioritize things, and sometimes security just or like the utmost perfect security just isn't there when we're talking about the runners, which are already running like arbitrary code. Yeah, I can understand that position. I, that said, I really want to call this out. Like I said, this was a known uh, technique for the escapes already. I kind of just want to call this out as like, you know, it's here on GitLab if you're in containers. Like, you know, it's worth keeping in mind these known techniques and just pointing out the fact that, you know, it's still there in GitLab. So if you end up in the right situation, this might actually be a benefit to you. All right, so for our last topic, we have a last-minute ad from a report that Z found interesting. Uh, so, Z, I'll let you take this one away. Yeah, this was a NextCloud. Uh, the title here is, in the NextCloud client, bypass the protection lock in the Android application. Uh, this reminded me of a vulnerability I saw in assessment once. It's not exactly the same, but effectively what this bypass is, and I'm not exactly sure what... This protection is all they mentioned here is you know add a security password to protect the app. So I'm assuming this like open the application, it asks you for a password, and then you enter the password and do whatever you want. So in terms of bypassing that, I mean another common thing is just looking for exposed intents that you can basically activate immediately and get around the password prompt. What they did here though was um uh, effectively open the Nextcloud app, you know, set the password, whatever, open the app, and then force close it on Android. Uh, reopen it, force close it, um, and do that between three and four times, and um, they'll be able to get, or they'll bypass the lock, basically, after that. So what I've seen in an application before was that they would detect this, uh, this force killing as a crash of the application. 
So the application was running. It's like, hey, this feature, this thing, like this is crashing the application. So let's let's disable it. And they kind of had that as a feature to disable security mechanisms. Oh, not not a very smart feature, but it was there, and I have seen that. This reminds me of that. But reading the actual discussion with the developers, it sounds like this might have been with very specific devices, not like an intended feature. Oh. Uh, they mentioned like they managed to reproduce it on a single device. Um, they call out some particular things here, so I'm unclear if that's what they actually did. Or I guess I just see now that they have a patch here. Or pull requests that this might. I didn't take a look at this before the show. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting that this only worked on certain devices. I wonder if that's just because the force stop. Like how the force stop functionality is implemented is slightly different between different forks of Android. Because um, I never really thought about it. Like I never really looked into the force stop mechanism. I imagine it's just like sending a signal to the process or something. Yeah, it effectively um, just kills the process. Yeah, it um, sends a kill signal. I will note so, like I said, I didn't look at the commits beforehand. I saw that link and I thought it was just a link. They mentioned it as like if you want to try the build from here. Uh, so I just assumed it was a build link and didn't actually look at what it was. Um, looks like they have a couple commits here that deal with updating the locks timestamp and using an abstracted clock implementation. So I'm not sure if that's going to be related, but it, it seems interesting there and, you know, could potentially be something if they were to track like a close time or something. Um, I guess force close probably wouldn't implement with that, but I don't know. The other one here... Oh, no, I guess there are a few things that could be related. I'd have to dig through these more to actually know which commits are related or not, but, um... Sorry, I was just looking at one. Um... Oh, no, it's an interesting bug, like I said, because this doesn't seem like an intentional feature. And I, uh, like I said, the other time I've seen this was like an intentional feature to just disable it because it seems to be causing problems. Oh, uh, and yeah, I mean, force killing applications can create some interesting bugs, not usually security related. Usually it's more related to not like cleaning up or. Maybe still holding something in a database when they shouldn't, like remote database. More things like that when you force kill and it doesn't get the chance to properly clean up. Uh, but it's an interesting thing to try here when it comes to bypassing those sort of in-app locks. Granted, the ideal way you do these in-app locks is to use some sort of encryption. So you need to provide the key in order to decrypt a file that's then used for, like, maybe authentication with the API, whatever it needs to do, but, like, you need to decrypt the file in order to do it. Um, and that way, even if you bypass the prompt, you're not getting past the... Um, not getting past the actual uh, protective mechanism. Oh, no. I thought it was interesting and at least worth calling out here. They got either a $100 or $200 bounty... It looks like uh, they mentioned here on, on the side of the page, it says they were rewarded a $200 bounty, but I also see NextCloud rewarding with a $100. Oh, so that was the bonus. Yeah, $200 bounty. God, if they did it twice. Um, so yeah, $200 bounty for it. I mean, not a huge bounty, but not a crazy issue. Yeah. And like you said, it is kind of interesting in the way that uh, I've hit a lot of bugs with Force Stop before because 
I have an Android TV that I absolutely despise and don't even use anymore. I don't even use the smart functionality of it anymore, but I had to force stop applications quite a bit. And yeah, it creates some really annoying bugs. And most of the time, that's all it is, is annoying bugs. So, you know, it's kind of cool to see sometimes it can yield security bugs like this too. Um, like you said, though, kind of that defense and depth aspect would have saved them here if they use if they use the password in a more ingrained way than just like a wall. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's how Nextcloud used it. So the attack worked out. All right. Um, Z, unless you have any last minute things you want to add in, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Yeah, no shout outs. All right, cool. So that's where we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Check out our website or chat uh, for Twitter and Discord links. Um, you can also find summaries and bods for our previous episodes on our website and on our YouTube. Uh, other than that, though, we'll be back tomorrow for our binary topics. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and we'll see you then.